and welcome to the Stafford Boxing Report. I am Sheila. I am Stafford. Oh, man. Man. Oops, we have to do that again. I'm sorry. I messed it up. What? We live, though. No, no, this. We, oh. <laughs> oh, man. Stafford Boxing. The making of champions. Today, we have a special, special guest. The big dog. A legend, Mr. Rick Glazer. I have to take a deep breath because we have a lot going on. He is a promoter, a matchmaker, international agent, advisor, New York State Boxing Hall of Fame inductee, and international boxing hall of fame elector and i hope i did not miss anything and besides him having great wisdom on the boxing side as well as the business side in the boxing industry everybody please stand up clap your hands and welcome rick glazer Woo! yes sir thank, thank you for having me uh on your show today um Actually, I haven't been a promoter since the recession of 2008 started. And um, what really happened was that so many people were getting laid off in the boxing business worldwide um, at an average four people per company. And they started to sublet me their work. And that overcame what I had been prior doing. And it uh, developed into a, um, a services business. And uh, today I... I'm supplying supplemental quality supplemental services to boxing promoters and uh, TV networks, um, managers, attorneys, everything all over the world every day. That's what I do. So um, it's fun. It's interesting. And no two, day, no two days are out of the same ever. I know it's not because I think you are busy 24-7, 365 days. Yeah, it, um, there's not enough time to promote. See, what happens is, just to let you know, when you promote a show, it takes, and, 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 without, and I always did it without a staff. I always worked with another promoter. We, you know, Mike Akers now passed away. We did a lot of things together. But what happens is that it takes you six weeks to two months to put a quality show together and keep it together and publicize it, market it properly, and that would take away from the bit my core business, which is supplying services now. And then you, instead of supplying, let's say 16 different deals a month for various people, you're down to eight and you can't make what you make on that one show, what you lose on the other eight deals you can't, you don't have time to do. And you have disgruntled clients. And the problem is, since I have so many promoters as clients, your promoters will now look at you as a competitor, being a fellow promoter, rather than a person working hand-in-hand -hand with them on a daily basis. So I elected to um, not promote anymore. And that was quite a few years ago. That was um, basically uh, in 2009 I decided to do that. So um, here we are today. Okay, so since we are, t even though I know you said that you don't do the promoting anymore, but you do work with promoters. Yes. I have, I have a question for a woman that wants to come into the boxing industry as an independent promoter. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, it has nothing to do with a woman. It would be anybody, male or female. Okay. So I always say this, everything is equal unless it's an actual sexual act. Okay. So that's just a joke, of course. Um, <clears throat> but um, you'd, in today's marketplace, you'd have to have some kind of facility that's relatively convenient for everybody. To, to the masses and relatively inexpensive. Uh, you can't go to do a club show and the guy charge you $20,000 for the ballroom or something crazy like that. Um, you've got to come on, come in wherewithal. You have to have solid financial background and understand business finance and um, what it incorporates to make an overhead um, in boxing work, a, a show that's budgeted. And you have to have some kind of income so besides ticket sales, such as sponsorships and um, and some kind of uh, streaming service to help supplement your costs. Um, one of the things that I've noticed about promoters that came in the business and that, that I had, had done shows before I even talked to them and they were complaining, they, they were calling me because they lost money and they were trying to figure out how to, is that their overhead for the shows were not realistic. I'll give you an example. Um, I had a guy who called me one time about seven, eight years ago. He had a $60,000 overhead for a show, which is not crazy. The problem is that his, his he only had 800 seats in the building and the place, and his average ticket price was 60 bucks. So that only comes out to $48,000 and without additional revenue, such as um, a streaming service and such a sponsorship, even if he sold out, he'd be $12,000 upside down. And he never bothered to figure that out because the guy who brought him into the business was just as green as he was. So I explained to him that, you know, you need to get more money for your ticket sales. You need to go to a little bigger facility if you already sold out 800 seats. And you got to cut your overhead down and you have to have more auxiliary income. Well, he balanced all that out and he became profitable. And 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 the, and the and the third well he had done two shows before he met me, and he became profitable in the third show. So that's one of the services I do provide. You know the smaller type of promoters and stuff, and trying to figure out a good balance between you know a cost and cost effectiveness and potential income or potential loss. Uh, you know sometimes you know you're going to lose money on a show like a. It's a it's a it's a manager that says, hey, I got to get my fighter a bunch of wins. This guy lost. This guy, this guy lost. He's going to lose money on the show. Well, we got to keep those losses to a minimum. And that's how you do it. You know, that's that. So you make it as cost effective as possible, even if it's going to lose money. Gotcha. Now, still speaking on the promotion part, what do you think about? OK, now we have Clarissa Shields and Savannah Marshall. They're in the UK and they have their fight that's going on. Do you think that outside of the United States, it's more accepted uh, for the female fighters, like to give them an opportunity? Because it's been so many stories that I've heard where the, an event was supposed to take place, but then at the last minute, they end up canceling the fight because they said, well, the female fighters aren't going to be bringing in any money. Well, so, I don't know. I haven't heard of that in particular, but this show won't be that way. It's, it's on TV. Uh, it's probably streaming, I believe, or it's either on 
I don't know what it's on, but it's a big enough fight that it's going to be, I believe, on Sky TV in the UK. I believe I'm pretty sure, um, and it'll probably, you know, it'll be on some kind of um, um, maybe ESPN Plus over here. I don't know, but that's a big enough fight. We won't have to worry about that. Shows getting canceled, smaller shows because of the lack of revenue or the lack of funding because the guy didn't realize he was getting in that deep um, is, is a problem on a, on a smaller level, but it's not on a national level. Okay, gotcha. Um, baby, did you, you said you wanted to ask him a question. Yeah. I don't want to keep on going. going. No, no, you're doing a great <laughs> job. You're doing a great job. She, she's the one that really prepared for this. I mean, she, I, she was up nights, uh, you know, just preparing. And I really admire her for her preparation to be able to provide a great service when she interviewed uh, anyone. But my question that I had was, what's the difference um, today in terms of the boxing in industry compared to years ago? Um, the, the, uh, it won't encompass in an hour or we take a month. But th th to start out with, when I started in boxing in 1991, you used to call up a manager and he used to say to you, I said, hey, um, I got a fight for your fighter. Oh, yeah, but, but give me the information. Da, da, da. Yeah, we'll take that fight. Or he'll negotiate with you from there. Yeah, okay. And you'll, yeah, okay. You agree to a price, we'll take it. Today, he said, well, I got to talk to the fighter, the trainer, the fighter's uh, wife, the fighter's mother. Um, the, the list goes on and on. And it, the, the, the managers are not in control of their fighters like they used to be, number one. Number two is the trainers have more control because they're in the fight. They're in the gym with the fighters where the fighters, the manager years ago, used to be real fight managers. They used to be in the, in the gym with the trainer and the fighter. Today, they're, they're lawyers because they're in the courtroom, a lot of them. They're, bit, they're investors. They're not real managers. So they're not in the gym with the fighters. So the, fighter, the trainer has more control than ever. Uh, the fighter's wife is, is big if they're married. If they're not married, believe it or not, their mother, their father. Just the way it is. Um, you need permission from an awful lot of people to, today to make one fight. That's a big difference. The second is, it used to be in the early 90s uh, and mid-90s and even the late 90s. You put out a fight poster and for a little local show and the people flock out. You know, 1,200, 1,500 people. Today, you got to really, 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 really work to get the same amount of people in that same show. Now, I'm not saying you can't, but you've got to work a lot harder to do so, okay, on the grassroots level. You know, where you used to just put out posters and say, hey, you're, um, you're, um, you're, the tickets are for sale at, at D's cigar store and, uh, and, and this, and Vito's market, you know, and you used to go, hey, you got tickets for the boxer? Yeah, you give me 30 bucks, you know, give me 60 bucks, I'll give you two tickets. Today, it's not that easy. Today, because of counterfeiting, you have to have like um, a ticket master involved. You know, these companies that, that sell these tickets, you can't have your local people counterfeit the tickets today is a problem. Just like hiring the pay-per-view is a problem for the bigger shows. So everything has gotten more sophisticated, okay? And the big thing today is um, t the TV alliances um, and the streaming alliances have caused a lot of fights not to take place you know the other side of the street mentality 
the fighters don't have the gumption they used to have to, to, to fight the best. There's, they don't have as many legacy fights today because the fighters don't have the gumption to, to, to form a great legacy. It's just the way it is today. Different mentality. Well, an another question you might be asking. No, Why do you have the passion that you have today that you had, like, back in 1991? Because just listening to you, you're very thorough, but at the same time, you can hear passion with your words. Well, you, I'm what they call a boxing lifer. I even hashtag that, um, hashtag boxing lifer. And um, I'm in it for the good, the bad, and the indifferent. It's just the way it is. I came into it. I didn't come into it looking at the world, through, looking at boxing through rose-colored glasses. I knew it was a tough business, and I'm a tough guy. So I just figured it was a good blend, and it remains a good blend for me today. Hey, I'm 64 years old. What am I supposed to do? Go out and sell wristwatches for a living or use cars or, or become a real estate developer? I am what I am. That's not going to change. And, and, and you might as well wake up with the greatest attitude in the world every morning. And I wake up at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning uh, to do my international business. And um, it's like uh, I wake up with that, you know, that tear your head off and shit in your neck mentality that you have to have to succeed in life. So and that's how I that's how I think, you know, um, that's the best way to think. You know, you can't let the world walk over you. And um, you've got to wake up with that passion every day and be the same person you are the prior day and every day. And, um, you know, I always say be the best person you can daily and do it every day. So that's what I am. Facts. I agree with that. I agree too. I have a question about how the, how the matchmaking is with the boxers. Because sometimes when I see some of these fights, I'm like... I don't really understand why they would have had the boxer that's like not really doing anything and getting tore up from his opponent. So can you give me your opinion well, on matchmaking? Well, it, so, every, there, when a fight gets made, there's a reason why every fight gets made. It just doesn't get made, okay? So it's either the promoter's fighter, they're looking for a soft win. It's either the promoter's fighter, and they're looking to put him in deep to see how much he can fight, okay? Um, they're, or they're looking for a, a deep fight because they need to sell it to the TV network or satisfy the TV network. Or the guy's a local ticket seller, and he can put asses in the seats. So if he can't fight much and they can put asses in the seats, they're not going to put him in with much. A typical, um, a typical uh, situation, like and using an example, would be uh, Campbell Hatton, Ricky Hatton's son over in the UK. Big ticket seller, can't fight much, and, and every time they get in the ring, they hope and pray he's going to win with the opponent that they put him in with. Okay? Um, and sometimes the guy's on the card because of the fact that he sparred with the guy who's the main event, is the promoter's fighter, and the, and the guy says, listen, um, the, the manager of the sparring partner said, listen, I want you to get him a win on the show. You don't have to pay him. Just get him a win on the show. Okay. That's part of the deal. You know, so there's always a reason why somebody's on the show. They just didn't appear there by accident. And that's what people, a lot of people don't understand. Gotcha. Another question. So I hear sometimes, especially while I read on Twitter, 
boxers being upset with promoters because they wasn't treated right or they wasn't getting their due pay. Do you think that promoters and even the managers, do you think a lot of them may take advantage of their boxers because their boxers don't have the the know about of what the they sophistication the sophistication you mean yes is that the word you're looking for yes um, i would say that's that's probably a third of the time i think it's a third of the time that the fighter overestimates his value to society and thinks he's worth more than he is or should be treated better than he is and I think a third of it's just misunderstanding between the promoter and the fighter and the promoter not being honest with the fighter, the manager, where the fighter, what the fighter means to that promoter, that promotional company, that promotion. And I think that's a, that's a big misunderstanding. That causes a lot of problems. Now, if a guy's beefy, let's just say, for instance, um, you're on a pay-per-view show and there's four fights on the pay-per-view. Let's say the main event was Fury and Wilder. Let me just give you an example. And the co-feature of this world title fight, then there's two eliminators. You're an eight-rounder on the undercard. Shut the shut the hell up and just be glad you're on the card. Stop barking. You know? So it depends on the situation. But like I said, a third, a third, and a third is about right there. Gotcha. Um, what do you think about the fox excuse me, the boxers today compared to the boxers um, in the late nineties and eighties? They're soft as fuck, excuse me for swearing, but they are. They just, it's a different state of mind today, different mentality. Uh, everybody's, because of the Floyd Mayweather, Al Heyman effect, everybody's afraid to have a, have, have a, have a, have a one next to their, uh, in the, the record in the loss column. That, so they don't, they don't take challenging fights. Um, it's a real problem today. It really is. It's a very, very big problem today. Um, the problem is, the sport is um, the hurt business, and people think they're going to get hurt, and not physically hurt, but hurt by their reputation, and um, they're afraid to lose. Where Roberto Duran, Sugar Ray Leonard, Tommy Hearns, Hagel, they all lost fights. They came back, and they performed 100%, and they kept getting opportunities. It's not – everybody misunderstands something. To make the biggest bucks, yeah, you got to keep winning. But if you lose and you gave 100% of yourself a sensational fight, as soon as you're ready to fight, you're going to be fighting again. Okay? And that's the way it is. And, and even a rematch or, or whatever the situation is, it's, losing is not an end-all. People think it's an end-all. And, that, and that's a complete fallacy and myth in people's minds. And guys like Al Heyman and Floyd Mayweather put it in their minds. Andrew Galata fought four times for the World Heavyweight Championship. Never won one time, but he was still given a lot of opportunities, wasn't he? Yeah. Right? So and he lost twice against Riddick Bowe, and he still got more opportunities because he gave 100% of himself. And that's all, you know, Yaki Lopez gave 100% of himself. That's the key. So Arturo Gatti. What about Arturo Gatti? Another one. The list goes on and on. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Rick. Let me ask you a question. What? Sure. What, is, what is it about Al Heyman that that displeases you? It, it's crimes against boxing. He does things that are against boxing, and I call I call anybody. It's not just Al Heyman. 
when Bob Aaron did something against boxing a couple of years ago, people were shocked I called him out. I said, wait, with me, you're either right or wrong. I don't care who's wrong. I told Don King recently, one-on-one, -on -one, Don, you're wrong. That's all there is to it. That's not how it should be done. And that's how I am. I've always, I'm very straight up and people can't handle it. The difference why Al Heyman is because he does so much wrong almost daily. That's what compared to the other promoters who do something wrong once in a while. And, you know, Don, Al Heyman can call himself an advisor, okay, but he's a promoter. He secured the TV deals. He's dwelling out the money. He determines who's going to be on his show and who fights who. He's the promoter. I don't care what the law says. Well, when a court of law said that he's not a promoter, he assigns the promoter. He determines where the fight's going to be. He's the promoter. So let me ask you a question about Don King. So uh, I was having a discussion with Sheila, and she told me that recently. Um, no, she said the reason why uh, Don King did business with you was because. What you well, he he heard uh, Rick Glazer's oh, yeah, 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 yeah. names every day. Yeah. So how yeah. did you, so so how did you and Don King get together? Well, um, I was doing business with his son Carl. Carl had a management company back then called Monarch Man Management, and um, I was supplying sparring partners and um, some opponents for some of his fighters, but mostly sparring partners. And um, he wanted to get me and um, have that meet have me uh, Don meet and stuff and do business and stuff. And in 2003, it basically finally happened. And um, Don started, when Don first um, started talking to me, he said, you know, I knew we had to work together. I hear your name seven times a day, except on Sundays. He says, how come on Sundays? Because I don't work as hard on Sunday. So, um, you know, people all over the world were mentioning my name. Like, in, like in, well, let me talk to my man. Let me talk to Rick Laser. Let me find out what he thinks. Let me, you know. And he kept hearing my name so much that he said he felt he had a, he, there was something special about me and he had to work with me. And we worked together from uh, 2003 to 2016. Mm. And um, I, I never worked for Don. Don was technically a client of mine. Um, Glazerboxing.com being my company. And um, I would stop because I had cancer. I couldn't travel anymore. And I was on my basically on my deathbed. I outlived cancer, um, believe it or not. Hey, and I, when I stay on my deathbed, uh, they told my wife to start making arrangements. And did you start making arrangements? I mean, they gave me no chance to walk out of that um, hospital. So, and I did. Um, and um, once I came out three, uh, three years and two months later, um, Don was in a regressed state um, in boxing, and I I helped Don here and there, but he's no longer. I I wouldn't call him a client anymore. He's more my dear friend. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, what do you think about the relationship between Don King and Mike Tyson now, compared to how it started to now how it is today? Well, I I blame I I tell you who I blame. I blame all the people that were around Mike putting filling Mike in Mike's head um, that Don was ripping him off. Let me just explain it to everybody. And I explain this all the time on podcasts because everybody talks to me about Mike because, about Don King and Mike Tyson because my relation with Don. First of all, I was never around Don when Mike was around Don. Okay, he was uh, he was around Don though 80, 97. I didn't come on the Don King um, 
wagon until 2003. Okay, so I didn't have any, there was no overlapping period there. Okay, but understand this. Okay, Don King and Mike Tyson handled over a billion dollars together. A billion. Okay, not a million with a with an M, a B, a billion back then. Really? Yeah, of course. All the pay per view money, all the all the site feed money, all the foreign TV revenues. Oh yeah, every, you no question. A billion billion dollars they handled. You're a gross handle. You ready? There was fourteen million missing, and Don's worth two hundred and fifty million dollars approximately thereof. You really think over all that period of time. From 1986-87 all the way up to 1997, over a 10-year period, you really think Don stole uh, $14 million, uh, $1.4 million a year, $1.4 million a year, which is a little, about $120,000 a month? Or do you think that maybe that money was misappropriated and lost in the shuffle over a 10-year period? Okay, and there was expenses that let, that 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 nobody talked about, such as um, Don uh, when Don had relocated to Florida. Mike got out of prison. Mike wanted a New York City presence. He had to go get him a, a New York. Had to go get an office in New York. He had to get somebody to run his fan club, which was his daughter, which was might as well be Don's daughter because you got to hire somebody. You might as well make it your daughter if, she, if she's qualified. Well, make a long story short, there wasn't fourteen million dollars missing. Okay, it was used up in the, over, over that kind of period of time. Like Don giving Mike two hundred thousand cash when he saw him. Oh, I need some money. Oh, here's two hundred thousand cash. That's the relationship they had. Well, when it was all said and done, when Don sued, when um, Mike sued Don. Okay, Don didn't have all the records in place because they were slow. So he never thought it would come to that. But two hundred thousand a year, send my baby's mama, a baby mama of mine, two hundred thousand. Do this, do that, do this, do that. Well, when it all and, and the New York City office and and the um and um the daughter being the uh, head of the fan club, all that added up to one to fourteen million dollars over a ten year period. Well, does anybody really think that a guy worth $250 million, he's making millions every time Mike Tyson steps in the ring, is going to rob Mike Tyson out of $1.4 million a year when he's making $25 million a year from him? No. And, and common sense must prevail. I'll leave it like that. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Boy, that was, whoo. Hey, I'm glad that you shared this on the Stafford Boxing Report. So now we have some clarity. I'm glad I was able to do so. And if I, if hey, I died of cancer, I wouldn't have. Done, I wouldn't be able to do so. Hey, man, thank you. Um, I got one more question. I'm gonna let you jump in. You can ask as many as you want. So, what do you think about uh, Javante Davis and Earl Spence and some of the other uh, top? fighter in the, I think they are in the 135, 140 uh, class. 147, 135 and 147, that's correct, yep. What about them? Well, I wanted to get your opinion on uh, Javante Davis, like compare him to, let's say, an old school fighter. Do you see any resemblance of him compared to an old fighter 
that you used to watch coming up during your time? Well, uh, three things. Um, he's tenacious at times. He's late mentally and physically lazy at other times in the ring. And he's left-handed. So to compare him to old-timers, where most of the fighters were right-handers back then, and um, most of the fighters were like, you know, either complete boxers or in your face, he's a very unique fighter. He's a, he, he turns it on and turns it off, and he's left-handed. It's hard to compare him to somebody you saw in the past that that it would be left-handed and and would be tenacious or or a boxer because sometimes he boxes sometimes he's lazy sometimes he's aggressive you don't know what he's going to be and um and be left-handed you know there's not a lot of the great old timers were all they were all right-handed very few left-handed so what's your definition of a complete fighter? Oh, I was just going to ask him that. Because, too. like... Um, a complete uh, fighter, in my opinion right now, would be... Um, um, let's see. I would say Bam Rodriguez, the 115-pound WBC champ that just came on the scene this year. He's a complete fighter. Okay? Uh, Terrence Crawford, complete fighter. Uh, Shakur Stevenson is on his way to being a complete fighter. No question about it. Um, I would say that um, I'm thinking here. Who would also be a complete Earl fighter? Who? Earl? What about Earl Spence? He's he's close to being a complete fighter, but I, he didn't look too good too good the um again in Ugas in spots. But he is he's overall a relatively complete fighter. Yes. So. Okay. I like Haney. Okay. What Haney, about Haney, Haney? No, Haney, Haney can't punch. He's not a complete fighter. Okay. Haney's not a puncher. Haney, uh, the rest of Haney's complete, but Haney's not a puncher. He's not a complete fighter. What about Garcia? Well, which Garcia? Ryan. He's not, he's far from a complete fighter right now. He's um he's got a lot to prove yet to me, even though he looks good so far. You know, he but Remember something. He's fighting tailor-made guys, guys that are right in front of you, guys you can't miss. And also, he's fighting shorter guys, and he's a tall guy, so he's punching down at people, which makes it a lot easier. Because he sure has been talking a lot about Tank, and on the our last show, I was like, he's not ready. He has. Well, he <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if he's ready or not. I, if I had Tank, I, I'm sorry. If I had Ryan, I wouldn't put him in. But the problem is, if I had Tank, I wouldn't put him in with with, with Ryan because Ryan's got fast hands and can punch. And Tank's a little guy. He's only about five foot five, maybe maybe five six, and uh, Ryan's about five ten. That's a big difference in the lightweight division. And punching down at somebody like that, it's it's a big advantage uh, to Ryan Garcia. Even though I think that. Um, Davis is more polished and seasoned at this point. There, there, remember, there's about a four and a half year span between them age wise. And that's pretty big, you know, experience wise, too. You know, remember, remember, Ryan's, I mean, Tank's uh, uh, already been in multiple, multiple world title fights. You know, be it their only secondary titles or not the full title, but it is what it is. So, so Rick, if I had to ask your, your uh, decision right now, who are you taking, uh, Earl Spence? Crawford. If, 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 if the fight happens, if there's a big if there, I, I I like Crawford. Faster, more nimble on his feet, switches lefty to righty, and is more of a killer instinct. 
and he trains all the time, where Spence just trains to fight. There's a big difference between training to fight and training all the time. Uh, Bernard Hopkins trained all the time. You saw how much longevity he had and what he did with that. Just the way it is. Yeah, that's what I've been seeing a, a lot of these fighters. They just don't have that endurance, that longevity. And it's like they get tired so quick, almost between like the second, third, maybe fourth round. And well, the reason for that. There's a reason for that. The reason is that fighters are getting in the gym to lose weight, to make the weight to fight. They're not in the gym getting in great shape because they were already in good shape before they got in the gym. They're not staying in touch. That's why certain fighters go through a fight like ease. Some of them can't make it through a fight. And that's exactly the reason, right? Just right there. Okay? That they're not in the gym. That, they're, that they get in to, to lose weight, and that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to get in the gym to get in supreme fighting shape, and supreme fighting shape, okay, and to hone your skills, not to not to lose weight. You're supposed to be on weight all the time within, within a reasonable amount to make the weight easily, not having to go in the gym to sweat the weight off. Gotcha. Does that, does that all make sense? Yeah. yeah. So with you just saying what you just said, mm -hmm. what what do you look for in a boxing trainer? Um, I look at I there's three things that I look at immediately. Okay. And and it's chemistry between the what that fighter, how that fighter, I mean how that trainer can help that fighter. So when Kevin Rooney was around, he worked really well with short fighters. Vinny Pazienza, Mike Tyson, the list goes on and on. I wouldn't send him a real tall guy, okay? Um, another thing is, I think Robert Garcia, it doesn't matter who wins or loses, Joshua or Rusak. I'm just making a point here. Robert Garcia is a fighter that works with smaller fighters and, and, and works with heavily on body shots. How do you, you can't work heavily on body shots in the heavyweight division because they don't throw body shots. And, and, and even if you taught them how, they're not going to. It's a different division altogether. They're, they're very unique. So um, the, those two things that I look at. And the third thing I look at is communication skills. Is that fighter, is that trainer dysfunctional? Is he going to be late to the gym? Is, is that fighter a self-starter? And, and, okay, if he is, then the, if, the, if, the, if the winning call, the trainer's a little – a little lazy himself, then you're going to say, okay, well, it's the trainer's a self-starter. But if the trainer's not a self-starter, I mean, sorry, the fighter's not a self-starter, you need a, uh, a trainer to be all over that fighter. Mm. Those are three things that I look at um, heavily. Right. Does that all make sense? Yeah. Now, I got a question. So, for us, we are inspired by Custom Model, and I know that you're very familiar with them because if you know, just listening to you, it sounds like you're from New York. Is that where you're from, New York? Yeah, well, I'm, in, I'm from a suburb of Buffalo called Williamsville. And um, we like to we like to say that we're part of New York, but we're on the good end of the state. Gotcha. So I'm a big fan of Cuss. I'm not even going to lie. I mean, every book that I possibly could find on Cuss, I was able to order it, and I've been reading it. But, you know, a person that's older than myself, you have a little bit more uh, understanding and 
respect for his craft as a trainer, as well mm -hmm. as multiple other things. I would like to personally know what's your personal opinion about Custom Model Legacy? Um, it was a great trainer. I mean, you know, the, the, the record speaks for itself. World champions on top of, you know, a whole bunch of champs. And, you know, Jose Torres, um, Floyd Patterson honed Mike Tyson from the beginning. I mean, the, and, and a whole bunch of other fighters that were champions, but not huge names. But he was as good as it gets back in the day. I mean, I consider Ray Arcel to be the greatest trainer of all time. Um, I consider Customato to be a, um, a sure top six or seven great all-time great trainer. And he, you know, he definitely wor warrants um, your respect. There's no question about it. He was a great trainer. And um, he was a, um, he was a, he was a mental motivator. was what I call a mental motivator. He got, he knew what to say to the fighters to, to um, get that them going. And um, he, he wanted to understand his fighter. In other words, some guys are with a woman. Let's just say, for instance, they're not, they're they're in this day and age they call them, uh, you know, you know, they're the baby's mama. But if if that woman didn't float his boat, but it was a he, but it was about the kid, he would say, oh, you know, uh, you, you know, you know, you know, your son Javon. He, he, you know, you know, he wants you to come home and he, he wants you to be smiling when you see him and stuff. So he would get into the fighters heads. Now, if he knew that he, he didn't have a great relationship with the woman, he wouldn't even mention her. OK, so he was a, he was a psychological genius as a trainer. And to be a great trainer, you have to that has to be part of your chemical makeup to be able to understand the fighters better. Teddy Atlas is great at that, okay? Emmanuel Stewart was great at that. Robert Garcia is great at that, okay? These are just some of the fighters that are really good. I mean, some of the trainers that are really good at it. And it's not, you know, the great line about boxing is it's not just physical, it's mental. Well, it's true. And you've got to know what motivates, you got to know what motivates your fighter, you know? And, you know, if he's scared of the feet, you know, you get you got to say to them, listen, put the, put the feet out of your mind. You're you're the champ. You're great. You got to know what to say, and he, he knew what to say at the right time. And he wasn't a phony. He was very a, as a human being. He was a very caring and um, uh, I'm looking for the right word. I didn't know him, but everybody has told me he's very caring and uh, nurturing. Nurturing. That's the word I'm looking for, and that's important. That's very important. So what do you think about the peekaboo uh, boxing style? Is that one of your favorite? Well, for a short guy, like I said about Kevin Rooney before, for a short guy, it works really well. It's a great, it's a great style if you're short. If you're tall, it doesn't, do, it doesn't have that effect, no. But it, it's a very good style. Listen, there's nothing that was wrong with Custom Auto. He was right outside of New York City in the Catskills. It was a perfect location where you can go into the city for a meeting. The fighters had a camp where they were close to their families, but they were far enough away, you know, and stuff. He'd monitor their phone calls. He knew boxing. He knew the science. He knew the um, the, the mental makeup of the fighters. He, he had the psychology. And there's, there's zero, zero, zero wrong about him. Okay? In other words, if you were to, if you were to make up a trainer, 
let's say you would you would have put a trainer on a blackboard and you say this is what I want in the trainer. Custom Otto's name would come up ninety nine percent of the time. I mean, he was he was Custom Otto. That's all there is to it. I mean, to, you know, it's a funny thing. It was once said, if you if if you're known by one name, you're an icon. Well, everybody, if you name Cust. No, everybody knows who it is. There's no question about it. So that's a great sign. I got I got another question. So you talk about the peekaboo um, boxing style is good for short fighters. What is a good What is a good boxing style for a tall fighter, in your opinion? Jab and keep your feet moving, moving left to right, right to left, whichever is more natural, and keep the jab on the person come back with the right hand most tall guys don't throw good left hooks most short guys do okay um very very few tall guys through really good left hooks if you look at lennox lewis larry holmes all your taller fighters they never threw great left hooks they always threw booming right hands so there there's your example right there you know so you, you got to stick to the jab no most tall people have long arms most tall people Jab well, got to use the jab, move to the left or to the right, whichever is more natural for you. Unless, of course, the guy's got a good hook that you're fighting and you don't want to walk into that punch or vice versa, uh, um, the great right hand. But as a general rule, you know, left to right and um, right to left and keeping the jab on somebody. And, and, and I say keep the jab. I don't mean like flick it out once in a while. Keep popping that thing. Keep up because when you throw a lot of jabs, you're going to find openings for the right hand. It's a nat it's a natural act. I have a question from Vinny Allaby. Do you have a favorite heavyweight fight of all time? Well, the first big fight I saw and was at the movie theater was March eighth, nineteen seventy one. Ali Frazier. One, which was really tip, was really Frazier Ali because he Frazier won, one. But um, I would say that one uh, would be one of my favorites. It was one of the great heavyweight fights of all time, and because it was my first big experience. And um, I would say, um, I would say Larry Holmes Ken Norton would be number two. I thought that was a sensational fifteen round fight, nonstop action. Split decision. Can't beat that. Great fight. So what about your uh, middleweight? Um, I would say Barkley Duran um, was great. Um, February 1989, Atlantic City. Uh, Duran on the comeback. Um, a big upset. Was, was older at the time. Uh, 38 years old. Uh, Barkley was a real champ. He just knocked out, had beaten Tommy Ernest twice, including once by knockout. And um, I would think that that was a great, great, great fight. And it came right down to the end. And uh, and Duran knocking him down got the decision. So I would say uh, Bar Dur uh, Duran Barkley, I would say, would be my best middleweight fight. What about lightweight? Um, I would say. Uh, um, well, I'm a little biased on that because I was Paul Spadafore's matchmaker. So when he won the lightweight championship of the world, the IBF light in uh, 19, uh, 1999, when he fought uh, 
Pete Cardona. But for non-financial involvement, I would say uh, July 1984 um, uh, in Puerto Rico, um, Edwin Rosario and Howard Davis Jr. WBC World Lightweight Championship split decision. Howard Davis got dropped in the last round to secure the victory for Edwin Rosario. It was a sensational fight. It was a mandatory and uh, a fight, and it was sensational in front of a packed um, outside audience. And I think that would be probably my number one lightweight fight of all time. Gotcha. You had a question? No, I have a question from Scrapbook Boxing. Hello. Who was Hello. your greatest fighter of all time? I mean, that I had, that I worked with? I guess well, who is the greatest time. fighter? That I worked with or or greatest fighter, period? I'm confused. Period. Period. Oh, period. Oh, okay. Um, Sugar Ray Robinson would be a, a no-brainer. Not even a, not even a, not even a close second. You know, and, and my, clo my second would be Henry Armstrong. Baby, what was that fight that that fought that fight that you just watched um, over the weekend? Oh, Florence Jr. Oh, let me say before we talk about that, uh, Ricochet. Hello, talking and Rick Glazer. Hello, Ricochet. Thank you for being here and everybody else. And you're welcome, Scrapbook Boxing. Yeah, there was a fight. It was actually a few fights that was going on. I know I was watching the one. Was it the one with? Um, oh, Cabarea, if I'm, am I pronouncing his name right, versus Flores Jr.? Yeah, this past week, yeah, yeah, Cabrera and Flores Jr., yes, what about it? How did you think about that fight because it was so quick with that seven-second knockout? Well, no, no, the fight went to distance, but it almost ended in the first round. Um uh, Cabrera is, is one of those type of fighters. He can get beat in any night by anybody, but Flores is, is, should never fight again. He's completely regressed from what he was a year and a half ago, and um, he's gone downhill drastically. And um, I think he's, I think there's damage there. I really do. He's he's slow. He gets hit with everything now. Um, he he pushes a lot of his punches, and it's, all, it's not a good side. He's he's way beyond the back nine. He's shot. Should never fight again. Rick, what age do you think a young, well, a parent should introduce their child to boxing? Well, I'm not in the amateurs at all, but I would say probably realistically when he's more physically mature, the seventh grade, he'd be 12 years old. These kids are starting six, seven, eight, or too young. 12 years old is about right. I saw that you had made a post and it was a joke about the Flintstones. I didn't really get it. I think it, you were talking about oh, about Ross Thompson. So Ross is um, an old school guy and he's never developed into these apps and he calls it cell phone boxing and and he, he does not even know how to use an app, doesn't have one. And most of your fights are on apps now. And he's just I call him the Freddie Flintstone of boxing. Because he's so he's so out of it, uh, technology and stuff like that, and you know that's what he is. I mean, he's my friend. I, I I've gone out with him socially. I wrote. I, if you call me tonight, say Rick, let's go to dinner. I'll buy him dinner. I love the guy, but, but that doesn't make him that Freddie Flintstone, you know. <laughs> and he all he just is like 
he doesn't get it. I mean, the reason why people don't get this, the reason why fights are on apps and not on TV is because the apps can control everything. Number one, it's world, an app is worldwide and it's accessibility to the, to the customers if you get it. So in other words, let's say my wife, let's let's an example. I, I'm just going to use baseball as an example. The other day, a week ago, the the Friday night games on Yankee, the Yankee games are on the on the on the Prime Video app. She says, "Oh, let's go to dinner. You don't want to watch those games." I said, "Honey, we can eat and watch the Yankee game at the same time." Because how's that? It's on the, it's on an app. We got, I so I put the phone next to. I, I asked the, the waitress for a glass, a big glass with water in it. And my wife says, you never drink water. I said, that's not for me. I put the phone right down on the table, leaned it up against the water glass. And I'm watching the Yankees off this side. And I'm looking at my wife and this guy and talking to her and listening to and watching Aaron Judge hit a home run. So that's why we have apps today. And it's a, apps are a great thing. I mean, it keeps the production costs down. Um, for 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 the net compared to a TV network, the app streaming costs a lot less. There's just so many advantages, and these guys that don't, I don't want to watch on an app. You can put it on. You can put it on your TV. You got a smart TV. Put it on your TV, but you know, don't tell. Don't call it cell phone boxing. It's it's it, you make yourself look like you're 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 two generations back, which Ross is. I'm 64. But I completely evolved with the times when I got a website, professional website. I got my own domain. I don't use a Yahoo or Gmail. I'm in business. Rick at GlazerBoxing.com. I'm in business. I use all, all the social media. I have very little on, on Instagram, but big on Facebook, big on Twitter. And you have to evolve. You have to evolve. You can't sit there and do nothing and, and you'll get stagnated and then the world passes you by. And I, I'm not going to let that, I don't care how old I am, I'm not going to let that happen to me. If I'm going to die, it's because I, I'm in ill health and I'm dying. It's not because I'm going to kill myself because I'm in I'm in limbo in my life. That's not going to happen. I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay, you. We, have, we have another question from Batman105Abel. What made Emmanuel Stewart such a great trainer? Um, he taught technical skills, great, great, and he taught great offense, and um, the you know the mental makeup of getting in a fighter's head. Those three things were Emmanuel's key. Just to let you know, Emmanuel is not great at working a corner. He admitted that to me uh, several occasions, but he had a good staff around him to help him in the corner. Over where he only had to give the guy instructions. He didn't have to take his mouth guard in and out, and, okay, all that other stuff. And, you know, he never did cuts like Don Turner does cuts on his own fighters over the years, certain certain trainers do. But the technical skills, teaching them offense, okay, and the third thing being he could get into a fighter's head, all three of those things. Okay, another question. Have you ever heard of Sam Langford? If so, what does he? What do you think of him as a fighter historically? He's one of the all-time greats. He was from Canada. He's one of the all-time greats. Um, he he's great historically, but I still think that 
you know, that Joe Lewis is the all-time greatest heavyweight. And, and Langford, I, I just had a, you know, you know, he's probably a top 12 heavyweight all-time, I would say. Definitely. He's ahead of Mike Tyson and Rocky Marciano, I'll tell you that. That I will tell you. So, Rick, you you mentioned your wife a lot, and I really appreciate that and respect that a lot because a lot of times professional men don't, you know, just mention their spouse and or let the world know that they are married. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind me asking, how many years have you been married? I'll give you the whole uh, scoop. I met my wife in, um, on on uh, March twenty seventh, um, um, two thousand and twelve. I met her at a local steakhouse, um, privately owned steakhouse, and um, she was there with her girlfriend. I walked in. I was meeting a friend of mine there, and a, a guy, and um, she was at the bar in the corner having um, appetizers and, and um, a glass of wine. I come rolling in, and I look, take one look at her. I, I ordered some meat. I looked over it again, and I said, oh, my God, I got to meet this girl. No matter what it takes, by hook or crook, I got to meet this girl. Well, I met her, and exactly one year to the day after we met, we got engaged, and six months later, we got married. I've been, it'll be nine years this coming November. It'll be nine years. I would do it all over again tomorrow, except this time I paid for all the marriage races, not 50% of it. I'm just kidding. You. <laughs> I, 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 that's a joke between my wife and I. So what happened was we went to get the marriage license. We were standing in front of the clerk. We had filled the paperwork out. The, the lady said, it'll be $40. I put 20 down. I said, where's your half? And she says to me, well, aren't you paying for all that? I said, I thought marriage was a partnership. Like I said, <laughs> where's your half? So the, even the, the clerk said, I've been working here 30 years. And I've never heard something so funny in my life. And, and my wife kept looking at me. and said, okay, I'll smart enough to put the other 20 down. So that's what happened. So you know, we have a we have a great marriage. Uh, it's got its ups and downs um, because of some sh stupid shit I do, but it's not because it's like cheating or not. Like I never cheat on my wife. I'm, I'm very loyal. But it's things like, you know, she looks at things differently than I do. Um, obviously, we come from two different cultures uh, is one. Um, she looks at things differently where – she doesn't even look at prices. Like she'll go shopping for clothes or, or, or at whatever. She doesn't even look at prices, handbags, you know, Louis Vuitton. Doesn't matter. It's thirty five hundred or fifty five hundred. She wants it. She gets it. You know. What I mean, it's a, it's a different mentality. Um, and I'm, I'm more fiscally conservative. So other than that, we but we're, we're good overall. There's no there's no negativity. I love my wife. I do it all over again tomorrow. So great, a great, a great lady, not a good one, a great one. Here's how I determine a great lady, a woman that would put up with me and smile about it. That's great. <laughs> All right, here's another one, Rick. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. You are the first white man that I ever spoken to that is married to a woman of color. I've never had a with a white man who, who was in a relationship or married to a black woman, right? Now, mm -hmm. me personally, I know what it's like to, you know, have, you know, a relationship with a white woman, and I'm also married to a black woman. And so mm -hmm. there is there, there is similarities, but there's also difference. 
from your mm-hmm. perspective as a white man, what was it for you to decide to marry this beautiful black woman? Because like for a white man to go outside his race to marry a black woman, it must have been something special because I know that there's a lot of beautiful white women, but at the same time, when I listened to what you said earlier, as soon as you walked into the restaurant and saw her, you immediately felt like, hey, man, I need to go holler at her. And you just couldn't take take your eyes off her. So, right. Well, that's the, beauty, like, that, that's the beauty part. She's a beautiful woman. Uh, whether she was white or black, she's a beautiful woman. Okay. And it doesn't does skin color. You know, I get accused of being a racist on, um, on Twitter an awful lot. Um where that comes from, I don't know. You know, not only being super tight with Don King, having a, an attorney till he passed away, and a black attorney till he passed away. My best friend and my my um my wedding was black, and he still is black today. It's just a joke. Um, but the truth of the matter is, um, it there's one big difference between a black woman and a white woman. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, two differences really, but one, they're all really the same in this regard, right? They're all different in this regard between black and white, white women, white women think they're very, very, very important. And you have to like call them up on a Wednesday for a date on Saturday, where in fact, a black woman will just be a, her natural self and you call her up at three o'clock hey what are you doing tonight nothing what'd you have in mind let's go out for dinner okay see you in two hours you do that to a, a, a white woman oh my legs aren't shaved i didn't do my hair my fingernail my nails aren't done i didn't get a pedicure honey i don't care what your feet look like i want to go eat okay forget about all that shit just about eating this ain't about your feet this ain't about your legs i want to eat i actually go let's go to dinner so that's that to me is a very very big difference between white and black. That's really the big big difference that I that I see. I dated a couple black women before, even though I was never in a serious relationship with them, with either of them. Okay, but that is the big difference uh, right there. Okay, the a white woman thinks you're so important, and you got to let them know in advance. And and a black woman will just say, hey, they'll just wing it. You know, oh okay, I'll pick you up in two hours. Okay. You know, so that's the difference to me. Other than that, it's it's all it's all equal. Um, Sadly, okay. Sadly, the sad part about being married to a black woman is you got ignorant friends that really that think that, um, you know, oh Rick, you get I heard you get married. Why do a black woman? Um, you know, I had I have to discount these people out of my life. The other one was. To be honest with you, one of the my one of my former friends, who was not a friend at that time anymore, because I didn't hang around with him. But you know, I ran into him at breakfast one day, and he was with a friend of mine, who okay, and I was with another guy who was friends with both all of them guys. They all yeah, uh, come out, let's join us. And he actually thinks like that. I hate to say this, but he actually thinks like black women like they have like sex like you know four times a day. Day, I mean the ignorance of these people and it's just you know i I don't know if it's the white suburban male mentality of of stupidity um if it's that particular person but i don't like i said i i did have some indifferences with some friends 
but most of them were very supportive. Everybody, when they met my wife, loved her. I mean, they just thought she was special. My mother loves her. My two sisters love her. I mean, I will tell you guys a really funny story that you guys will burst out laughing. And this is funny. I'm making fun of myself when I say this, but to show you how I love and adored my wife. is. So I, when I had the cancer, when I became an outpatient treatment, I was still on the chemo, but I was, I had to go back every 21 days for four days for the, for, you know, get pumped up with the chemo again. So I was not feeling well all the time. I was tired a lot. I'm laying in bed and was supposed to go out for dinner on a Sunday. And I said to my wife, honey, I'm too tired. Well, I'm going to stay home with you. So I said, well, let me call my sister and tell her we're not coming home. My whole family's going to be older than my mother, you know, all the BS. So it was a Sunday. I called my sister. My mother's standing there because they're making the food. You know how it goes. And I, I, they had me on speak, put me on speakerphone. I said, listen, we're not going to be coming over. I'm not feeling well. Said, What's that got to do with Sonia? You can stay home anytime. Send her over. <laughs> so, like, we don't care about you. Make sure she comes. So it's just the way, you know, you know my family was more than accepting. Um, my sister is a um, – my one sister is a um, – She's a law professor. She's a um, she's a vice dean at the University of Buffalo Law School, and she's president of the National uh, Legal Informational Services Association, which is law librarians, professors, um, people that manage law firms, record keeping. She's just took all, all her oath this past week here in, in Denver to national convention. She she was the president of, of the elect for I think the last two years she was the president elect because she had been elected two years ago. But you serve under the um current president um so you learn how it goes and stuff, so there's no you know, there's no problems. Um and my my sister had a great line about this, and she said to me, She says, Rick, all people are created by God the same way. Some know where they're going. Some never get where they're going. She goes, you knew, you knew what you're doing. You waited till you were 54 to meet the right woman. I didn't get married till I was 55. And Sonia was not, you know, she wasn't young herself. So um, she waited for the right person. I waited for the right person. And, you know, we met each other and it worked out well. She never really thought about getting married because she had met somebody she couldn't do without. And I had been in a long time relationship that, that, it's a very long story, but I was in a relationship with a woman for 26 years on and off. And um, it, it, it wasn't good. It wasn't a good one. You know, she was married to somebody else for a long period of that time. It was pretty, it was, she was, a, she was, we were great lovers. We were horrible boyfriend and girlfriend. It's the best way to put it. That's so she finally left her husband and she could only tolerate me and I could only tolerate her for two years. So there you go. Well, Rick, I greatly appreciate you sharing that personal information. Um, I, I went to a, a predominantly all-white school in McCook, Nebraska. This was back in the early 90s, and it was about 8,000 white people. The only black people was in that particular town was on the basketball team, and you can only keep a certain amount of, you know, out-of-staters. And I, I almost married this white woman, and, you know, but... I just, I mean, it was just something about a black woman that I just couldn't do it. But she was a good woman, and, and I really do apologize that I really broke her heart. And, you know, but anyway, during that time, I did experience a lot of racism. 
and there were there were there were times where I would walk to school and get heckled by the good old boys. I remember one time I was walking to school, and um, they threw urine on me. You know what I mean? And so it, it was one of those situations where I really had to like go into the library and read history books so I can get strength from my my ancestors who have experienced that on a different magnitude to be able to make the right decisions because I believe that if I would have made the wrong decisions, it would have prohibited me from moving forward and getting the respect that I was able to obtain from that university. As a matter of fact, I became the first African-American to receive my associate of science in pre-nursing. So with that being said, um, I really appreciate your knowledge. I really appreciate your integrity. I appreciate your, your boldness. Like you're a very bold person a person of accountability, if I may say. And I think that people like you are, are needed in our communities because you'll call a spade a spade. And um, your, your ability to communicate is very important. And I really enjoy just listening to you. Like I can listen to you for hours and hours and hours as like a student to a teacher. And that's maybe, I I be, maybe I should be married to you because my wife says the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> you good. You good. You good, man. And like yeah. um my wife, she really prepared for this interview and I was just, you know, kind of watching her prepare for it. And the reason why she said that she wanted to really well, she always do, but she really respects you, respect your your expertise as a boxing expert. That's the way that she views you. And so she wanted to make sure that when she interviewed you today and asked you questions that you will walk away with the respect level that you didn't have initially from her, but after talking with her, you will have a different level of respect for her as a woman that's trying to advance in the boxing industry. Oh, I appreciate that. Yes, and I and I, and I feel that way. Um, Sheila asked very good questions, and um, if she has any more, ask them. Um, it's uh, boxing is not an easy thing. Um, it's been a male-dominated sport forever, uh, and I'm talking about the business end of it, of course. And um, it uh, it's it's a tough sport. There's no question about it. It's a tough sport and it's a tough business. And you know, the sport and the business are two different things. Um, I've, I've clearly defined what the difference is. Um, I, you know, it's uh, you try to be candid with people and you tell them the truth and then they get mad at you because you have a difference of opinion, even though that you have the experience, the knowledge, you've been through it, you've seen it and people don't get it, you know, but it, it is what it is. I mean, I get called racist on Twitter all the time and says, uh, you know, that I'm racist because I don't like Al Heyman. Well, I love Don King. What's that got to do with it's not race. Okay. When if you don't like a person and you're justified for those reasons, that's the way life's supposed to work. If you're not, if you just say, I don't like a guy, why? I just don't like him. Well, that's stupid. That's ignorant. I'm not ignorant. I understand why I don't like people. Um, I don't like crimes against boxing for starters. I don't like the way the guy operates um, where nobody meets the guy. He doesn't um, speak for his fighters. He doesn't talk to the press. How do you how do you do anything with your fighters? How do you be a mouthpiece for your fighters? An advisor is a mouthpiece for the fighter. How do you be a mouthpiece for the fighter if you're not talking to the press? You don't grant interviews. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. You know, so. That's just the way it is. Many, many, many people agree with me, by the way.
you know, they're afraid to say so because they don't have the gumption and the, and, the, and the mental moxie I do. And, you know, and put it this way to you, I got balls down on my ankles. I'm not afraid of people. I tell it like it is. One the great thing about being Rick Glazer is I have many, many, many business accounts around the world. If I lost an account, it doesn't even show up with the bottom line. So I can be the person that I am. That's why I can't be um, uh, muzzled. You know, I'm not going to be told what to say or dictated to or anything like that because I can afford to be that person because if I lose an account, okay, I lost 10,000, 12,000 a year, 15,000 a year, but I've got 45 other, 46 other accounts. You know, I got 46 accounts right now around the world. And okay, so if I lost one, I'll have 45. Okay, no big deal. Doesn't Rick, change my living. Rick, nor, wanna, nor will I be compromised. I, I want I wanted to, you know, say this as a man coming to another man, right? And my wife has a level of passion for boxing that's it, she she's out there. That's and, well, and, and well respected by me, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. And it's important to make sure that she is around people like yourself. So I'm asking you personally from, from man to man, and I say this with total humility and confidence. Now, you have balls of steels as, as well as I do. I'm, I mean, I don't fear nothing. I mean, that's just who I am. But anyway, like you say, the boxing industry is a, is a platform for nothing. With, with, you know, it's cutthroat. I know that, right? Mm -hmm. And it will really mean a lot to me. And I know time is money for you. I know that you're a consultant. You you do this, you do that. But I would appreciate if you would just always have your um, your phone available for Sheila to call you because you, 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 I I Mr. Stafford, I appreciate what you just said to me. Well respected, but you didn't even have to say that to me. Of course, I would treat your wife that way. Not because she's your wife, just because she's trying to succeed in professional boxing, and I help people succeed in professional boxing. That's one of the that's one of the reasons why I feel I was put on earth. I've done all this. I've done. I've been doing this for thirty one years, and it's it's just like like people take a shower and get up in the morning, take a shower, brush their teeth. You know, to me, it's boxing. And um, you know, people ask me why I'm on social media because I have boxing. to ask you that though. I I really oh, do because of because course important for me to show my support oh. towards my wife as her husband. A hundred percent. And I, I would do the same thing if I was you, to be honest with you. So I have no problem with it. You know, you guys are, are a great couple. I can tell, um, you know, you're supporting your, your wife, your wife supporting you. And that's great. I feel the same way about my wife. So I'm old school. I believe in that old school marriage um, I believe in, you know, being loyal. Um, I believe in all, all those things that really count. You know, it, it's a funny thing. My wife does these drawings and she doesn't get to bed until four o'clock, three, four o'clock in the morning because she'll draw for three, four hours. Right. And I'll be sleeping because I got to get ready to go for my business three or four o'clock. Well, she will come in. I said, wake me up. Well, you come at three o'clock in the morning, wake me up four, wake me up to wake me up and I get to work. Okay. And it's a great, and that's just how we operate. So we have this um, this comrade, but I'm going to tell you a funny boxing story that you guys will like about my wife and I, and to tie it in with our marriage. You'll really like this. This is a great one. So before we were married, 
Um, my wife used to stay here at my at my condominium. Well, not this one here, but the previous one I we I had when we went when I before I was married. And she's very old fashioned, so am I. So I she slept under the sheets and under the under the blankets, and I slept on top of the blanket and put another blanket over me. So she was there, I was here, we were within hands length, but it was hands off. I, I had no problem with that. I I agree. So one night in the middle of the night, I get this phone call from Australia and I make this deal. And, and, and I I had the fighter in. I knew it already because the fighter was looking for a fight. I know how much he fights for. The guy's okay. Um, so the, my, I get off the phone from the guy and my wife says, did you have to take that call in the middle of the night? I says, honey, we, I didn't say I, I said, we just made $5,000. She says, keep taking those calls. Keep taking those calls. <laughs> now, wait, that's not the funny part of the story. Okay. So now we're on a honeymoon. Five days, we're on a 21-day honeymoon. Five days into the honeymoon, she says, Frick, what happened to those phone calls in the middle of the night where we're making 5000 I says, well, honey. Due to the fact that it's our, our honeymoon and everybody knows it, I e emailed everybody and told them to start out everything with an email or a text to not call me and wake me up out of respect for our honeymoon. She says, call those people back, or email them back immediately and tell them to start calling again, please. <laughs> so there you, there you go. That, that's, uh, that's the way it is. What can I tell you? Everybody likes that one. Well, well, Rick, we greatly appreciate your time. Yes, and, um, thank you. You know, this was more so like a, I, I felt like a, a kid talking to his parents. Like, you know, just, <laughs> you know, I'm just sitting here listening with tentative ears. And Do I look that old? Come on now. No. no I got a full head of hair. I, I'm no, not all wrinkled was, up. Come on now. No, Do no. Do I look no, like an old no. man to you? No, 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 no. Before, I ain't bad looking now. No, no. It's just the respect level that we have for you. You know what I mean? And when a person has this type of experience in any industry and you're trying to navigate through this industry, it's important to be all ears. You don't have nothing to talk about. You should be all ears listening and be grateful for this person's time. And I think that a lot of times people just don't respect people's time. But I understand and she understand that anytime that someone is able to give us their time, man, we appreciate it because that time that you gave us was an investment. It's like gold, gold nuggets. And we're going to take that conversation that you share with us. We're going to turn into a gold mine. I'm personally, I'm personally going to go back and look at this interview again because it was so much jewels that you dropped on this, on this interview that I really need to really pay attention to as well as Sheila. And I know she's going to as well. Well, I, I, I appreciate you guys having me. And, uh, it's, um, you know, it's, uh, I just try to be the best person I can be every day and I do it daily. That's all there is to it. And if people don't like that about me, that's a shame. But, uh, you know, I get, like I said, several times I get accused by people on Twitter all the time of being racist and stuff. And, one time I said to a guy, a uh, guy says to me, uh, who do you like in the fight, Crawford or Spence? I says, I says Crawford. This is when he was fighting for um, uh, Aram. I, I, I said, see, you're racist. He says, why am I racist? There's two black men. He says, he's fighting for the white man. 
mean Bob Arum. I mean, it's like this is the stuff you put up with. Or like you tell people who's going to win the fight between Fury and uh, and Wilder. Fury. Well, see, you're racist. You want the white man. I said, no, I didn't say I wanted the white man. When I said he's going to win. He's the better fighter. He's got more tools. He's got more. He's got a bigger toolbox. He's got faster hands. He's more durable. Okay. And the meantime is you're, you're marked as a racist. You just being Rick Glazer, you can't win with certain people. You just can't win. And it, 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 you can't please the masses. It's very hard. But um, everybody that knows me as a as a person, um, you know, one on one knows that I don't have a racist bone in my body. Um, and it, it, it's sad that people really think like this. They really, really, really think like this. You know, one time I, 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 I um. I call the uh, uh, this is the black man side, not a not a person of of Puerto Rican descent. Oh, you know what is he? I said, oh, he's Puerto Rican. See, you're racist. You call him a Puerto Rican. That's not a bad name. That's what he is. Okay, what am I supposed to say? He was born in Puerto Rico. No, I don't know if he was born in Puerto Rico. He might have been born in New York City. I don't know where he was born. He could have been born in Florida. Okay, so it's. People just like they criticize, they they critique and uh, everything you say, and I, I just wish people would critique me for the knowledge I can spin off, and the potential help I can give them if they ask, if if called upon, rather than saying to me, "Oh, you're racist," and you're you know, it's just I just I'm wore out. I'm almost I'm all, I was almost going to go off Twitter because I'm just go to go back to Facebook. I, I'm on Facebook. But, you know, I've got almost 10,000 followers between Twitter, Facebook, and, and Instagram. I've only a couple hundred some. It's no big deal. But the point is that I know I'm unfairly targeted as a racist, and I don't know why. Um, you know, they said one guy, one stupido said to me, which he's right about, but, you know, that doesn't mean you're a, you're not a racist because you're married to a black woman just because you're in love with, love with a black woman. I says, well, that's true. I said, but do you think if I was really racist, I would have bothered to meet a black woman? So there's your answer right there. So I like to extend this to you folks. Anytime you want to have me on the show, again, I'm ready, willing, and able, as long as it's on, a, on an afternoon or an evening, it's not a, in the morning, because uh, I'm really busy in my mornings, obviously, with the boxing. And also that um, I enjoyed myself. My phone is open to you. Um, Sheila for any kind of advice and you Mr. Stafford for any kind of advice I can render you um, whatever the situation is hopefully you'll someday we'll meet in person and, you know and uh, carry it even further you never know but uh, um, you guys can call me anytime you want and you can have me on the show anytime you like you ask great questions and um, um, I'm, you know I'm glad I came on today you know I think you guys have a, a lot of potential with the show. I see the production's very good. I can see myself clearly. It isn't fuzzy. Not that I want to see myself clearly. But um, you know how it goes. But uh, here we are. So let me know when I can be of assistance to you, um, or whether it's over the phone or on your show. I'm, I'm glad to serve you guys any time you want. Okay, can, you can consider me a friend now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted Thank to you. I wanted to give out a shout out to Darian Johnson. Yes, sir. Omar Howard. Yes, sir. Rodney Whitehead. Yes, sir. And again, Vinyl Ollie B, Scrapbook Boxing, and Batman 105 Able. And I think that's it. And shout out to Rick Glacer, too. A real one. He's a real one, fellas. 
And we want to thank all of our viewers for joining us and those that are going to be watching this, whether on uh, LinkedIn or YouTube. You can also listen to it audio, which is Spotify, Apple, Google, if you don't have time to do it anytime. Did you want to say anything? Um, no, because you know what? After this, you know, lecture from Rick Glazer, he already gave so many nuggets. Okay. I don't even I don't even want to come behind you. I'll leave you I'll leave you this nugget from my father. I was ten years old. He gave me a speech. He says, Son, never lie. Always tell the truth. Because in the long run, the truth will always serve you better. I says, Dad, what's the second one? He says, Always listen to your father. He's always right. <laughs> so we we walked. We were at an airport in Philadelphia. We went to walk down this thing, and he said, "It's over to the left." I says, "Dad, it's over to the right." Eve, despite the fact you just told me you're always right. Man. So there you go. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm as close as the phone, and uh, if I could be any assistance to you in any way, I could help you out. Let me know, and I'd love to be on your show again. Just ask. You don't have to let me know six weeks in advance. I, if I cannot do it in the next day or later that day, I'll do it if, like, one of your guests fails to appear. You know, whatever the situation. If I can help you out, I'm going to. That's what I was put on earth to do, help people out in boxing. Okay? We appreciate that. Everybody, please make sure that you like, share, subscribe, leave a comment. Also go to the Stafford Boxing Club YouTube channel. Make sure that you do the same. And we are going to be out Stafford Boxing. The okay. Text me, text me the uh, text me the link on my cell phone so I can put it up too. Okay. I got Thank you. Thank you. Have a have a wonderful time. Bye bye, folks. Thank you. Thank you.